0: Welcome to the free to be more podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. She is a fixture in Annapolis, and he is a fresh face on the political landscape. Delegate Maggie McIntosh and Councilman Zeke Cohen talk to the Free to Be More podcast about how they're trying to lead Baltimore forward. Delegate Maggie McIntosh has served the people of Maryland for nearly three decades. She's chair of the powerful House Appropriations Committee and has been called by The Washington Post a skilled strategist who brings home resources to Baltimore. Delegate McIntosh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: So for people who are not familiar with your career, I want to go back. You were a Baltimore City school teacher. So how do you go from being a city school teacher to being one of the most powerful legislators in Annapolis? Well, you can
1: view it in one of two ways. I either took a wrong turn or I took a right turn. But, you know, I will be very honest with you that One of the reasons I'm so committed to public education in my current role in the legislature Mm -hmm. is that I taught schools in Baltimore at a time where they were cutting budgets and cutting back and I taught art and art and music were on the chopping block. And so I had a decision to make. I was at that time chair of the art department at Herring Run Junior High School and I had been told that that position would not be in place the following year. And uh, the position that they were offering me was one that wasn't even in the art field. So basically my position, the chair of that department got eliminated. And um, I um, looked around for another job and I applied at the Commission on Aging in Baltimore City. I applied for an arts and aging grant program that had just started. I ended up being a grants analyst, but nevertheless, uh, that was my transition to Baltimore City government. But the whole time I was doing this, you know, teachers have the summers off. So Mm -hmm. I had friends like Mary Pat Clark. Name's (laughs) not familiar.
2: Yes, Uh, ma'am.
1: Perkins, you know. Ken Montague and a few others who ran for local office. And uh, I managed their campaigns and was either first or second in command, as we say, in their campaigns. So I got really interested in being a public servant at the local level.
0: You know, it's one thing to manage a campaign, it's another thing to be the name on the ticket. Was there any apprehension from you, or did you just feel that passion and drive to do it?
1: You know, they tested me, by the way. I think it was, uh, I can't remember the year, but anyway, I ran for Democratic State Central Committee with a delegate team, and Perkins was one of those delegates. It was a volunteer position with the Democratic Party, but they asked me to go out door to door and to do the kinds of things that the major candidates did on the ticket and i pretty much proved myself at the doors i love knocking on doors i love talking to constituents and uh, i think from that point on in particular delegate perkins and perkins had mm-hmm. her eye on me as someone who might be recruited to run for office mm-hmm. so um, in 1992 she left the legislature mid-term and um, she uh, called me up and said there's going to be a vacancy in the district. Would you like to fill this vacancy? Mm-hmm. And I did.
0: Wow. I want to talk to you about, you have been in the legislature for nearly three decades now. It is Women's History Month. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me being a female leader in Annapolis, you know, 20-some semi years ago, how different is that than being a female leader in Annapolis today?
1: First of all, it's very different. And As a part of my history, I have to tell you that when Ann Perkins called me and said, do you want to be in the legislature? I was working for someone named Senator Barbara McCullough, (laughs) the state director. I was her campaign manager. And, you know, I got to see her up close, personal, firsthand, being the effective United States senator that she was. And that was her first term as Senate. So I came into the House and, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. The Women's Caucus was just emerging and was just beginning to claim some power. And today, if you look around and you look at the positions of chairs and vice chairs and you know people who are in power in the legislature, I mean, look at no further than our own Speaker of the House, Adrienne Jones, the first woman and the first African-American to be a presiding officer. So not only are women emerging in leadership and have been over the last two and three decades in Annapolis, but also a more diverse leadership team.
0: Sure. When you were first starting, was there a lot of experiences where you were kind of the only woman in the room, the only woman at the table? I know um, Senator Mikulski, I've interviewed her before, and she talks a lot about being the only woman in the room and how she helped mentor other women that were coming into the Senate so that she wouldn't be the only woman in the room.
1: That is absolutely one of her Biggest, I think, contributions Mm -hmm. to our democracy is the mentorship that she offered so many senators. And by the way, members of the House, Mm -hmm. I don't remember being the only woman in the room. I was lucky enough to come in, and my first committee chair on appropriations, subcommittee chair, was Nancy Kopp, who's still the state treasurer of Maryland. Mm -hmm. So I never felt like I was the only woman in the room, but I do know that the real decisions were made by a set of men at that time. And it took really Cass Taylor who became Speaker Mm -hmm. and made me the first woman majority leader in the state of Maryland in the House. And then Speaker Mike Bush, who really diversified leadership in the House of Delegates.
0: You have experienced many a session, and I imagine this session is unlike any other because of the pandemic. So tell me how much has doing the job of the state changed in this year?
1: Yeah, it's a tremendous change. I think we all miss the collegial kind of piece of doing our business during session. But I will tip my hat to the staff of the speaker and the president of the Offices, they figured out a way where we could come in, do the state's business, do the business for our constituents. We're going to take a you know budget out to the floor next week, and uh, operating budget and capital budget, and we have been able to do it safely and in a healthy way. So that means that we've done so much work on Zoom. I'm now you know probably five six hours a day on Zoom, but it is efficient on one hand. But it's also, I think you miss a lot of the nuance on the other hand. And on the floor, it's very interesting. 50% of the members of the house are not on the floor Mm -hmm. uh, in the chambers. They're over in a couple of other rooms across the street. They're set up with a desk and plexiglass and so on and so forth, but it's a very different feel. Again, you just don't get that collegial a lot of conversations a lot of work gets done on a conversation walking down the hall
2: the free to be more podcast is a production of the enoch pratt free library which is now open for business 21 libraries across baltimore are now open at 25 percent capacity for browsing and computer use health and safety restrictions apply more details at prattlibrary.org
0: sure it is definitely a very interesting year and Some news that we're seeing happening is that we're starting to see more further openings and lifting of capacity numbers from the state level. The governor announcing um, some of those COVID capacities are now being lifted. Are you concerned about that, given that the numbers have just kind of started that backslide, or do you feel like it's the right move right now?
1: I'm a little concerned about that. Now, I think the governor has done a good job of getting us through this pandemic, and he certainly hasn't behaved like many other governors that ignored the fact there was a pandemic, he has followed the science. I'm a little concerned, our numbers are coming down, but these new variants, the new strains that are out there are beginning to tick up. Mm -hmm. I'd rather wait maybe another eight weeks before I lifted a lot of restrictions. But I do know that this governor will watch the numbers. Mm-hmm. and If they start to tick up, he will back off and close things down. He's done it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. He's had to do it more than one time.
0: Sure. There's been a lot of talk. I feel like it's the dominating headline on the news that every single night is about the vaccine. Do you have concerns about vaccine equity and the way it's been distributed, particularly in Baltimore City, who you represent?
1: Absolutely.
0: And in fact, you
1: know, Baltimore City, within our boundaries, we've gotten the most vaccines delivered, but they were delivered to hospitals. They were administered to hospital staff, doctors, nurses, frontline, all of which I support, and the vast majority of which don't live in the city. So Mm -hmm. what the mayor has been focused on, rightfully so, is that Baltimore City residents have not gotten an ample amount of vaccines. And more importantly, older African American mm-hmm. residents have not been able to access the vaccines. They're not, you know, many of them don't have a computer or a laptop in their home, and they haven't been able to get online and get, uh, you know,
0: mm-hmm. an appointment. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I'm very concerned about it. I did listen to the governor today and I hear that, you know, in about two weeks, we ought to see a major increase in the amount of vaccine Mm -hmm. coming into the state. So I'm hoping and very hopeful that that combined with the governor focusing more now on racial equity in the distribution of the vaccines that these older predominantly African-American, but certainly black and brown Residents of Baltimore and of Maryland are able to access a vaccine.
0: I know the governor had formed um, an equity task force for the vaccine. It's sort of the first of its kind as a state run task force. Do you feel like that's a way to make strides or is it something that maybe should have been done six months ago? You finished my sentence.
1: (laughs) I applaud him for doing it. Um, I think it should have been done before we even did the rollout of the vaccine. I think what my own colleague on the Health and Government Operations Committee and the House of Delegates has tried to convey to all of us in the House is that Maryland has done a lot of things right, but the rollout of the vaccines lacked a plan from the beginning. Sure. So we're playing catch up. But for that, I'm thankful. Mm-hmm.
0: We talk a lot about the health effects of COVID and you know what we've seen in our city, I think there's less of a focus at this point, um, just because it's such an urgent emergency, at what the long-term impact would be. So what are your concerns, particularly financially, for the state in the long-term impact of COVID-19?
1: This concerns me a great deal because I think what we're gonna feel here in the short term, first of all, Maryland's revenues gotta write up, so everybody's feeling good. That's one. Two, we have you know President Biden and Vice President Harris who got the COVID Relief Act through, mm-hmm. and Maryland and many of the subdivisions are going to be getting money to help with opening schools, learning loss, and so forth. So we're all feeling good, but there is this really silent issue that we are going to have to deal with for two or three years. One the learning loss of kids and two, the job loss of so many people. If you look at the data, you'll see that the people whose jobs are returning, coming back online, are people who made over $75,000. The people who made under $75,000, those jobs haven't come back. Mm -hmm. I believe a huge portion won't come back. Mm -hmm. So our job, I believe, in the legislature is to make sure that we take this federal money and the money that we have in our revenues, and begin to provide training and apprenticeships and help people get back into new careers because the old careers aren't going to be coming.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the federal funding that's come in will make up for the deficit we could see from tax revenue over the next couple of years when it comes to the state budgets and the decisions that you and your colleagues have to make about where that money goes?
1: Yes, I do. It's very generous. Mm-hmm. It is gonna help us not only give relief, but recover. And you know, one of the first things that the legislature did this year with the governor was to pass a relief act, mm-hmm. uh, which gave tax breaks to those who need it most that provided earned income tax credit for those working families who file taxes, who are really the low poverty or almost at poverty level. In fact, our earned income tax credit in Maryland will be the highest in the country. We also expanded it so that people who are here, who are immigrants, who are not yet have legal status, Mm -hmm. uh, but are working and in the process of becoming citizens in our country, uh, will be able to, in fact, if they're working and they file taxes, be able to avail themselves of this earned income tax credit.
0: Mm. That's amazing. I would be remiss if I did not ask you, you've been a strong advocate for your entire career for the Enoch Pratt Free Library. What important role do you feel like the library serves within the city of Baltimore and state of Maryland?
1: Yeah, well, I've been pleased that, while I've been in the House of Delegates, you know, it was named the State Library and is highlighted as the Maryland State Library. You know, I've also been pleased to see our former head of the Pratt Library be elevated to the Library of Congress. What a wonderful thing for Baltimore to have happened! But you know, let's look at the pandemic, just the pandemic, and think about what the Pratt Library did. It opened up, you know, so that people could come on their parking lots, uh, students and parents, mm-hmm. and provided hotspots so that learning could happen in our schools. It provided a number of services to help digital learning where there was no broadband available. So, you know, that's really an incredible service that Enoch Pratt Library has served. And then the programming at Enoch Pratt Library is terrific. Mm -hmm. And just recently you had Barbara Mikulski and Wendy Sherman on, (laughs) uh, who I'm proud to say are personal friends. Wendy is actually somebody who recruited me to work uh, for Barbara Mikulski. So great programming. But more importantly, stepping up in the times where we need it the most and be a partner with the community.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is special how much the people of Baltimore value the institution of the library and it's a mutual affection. So um, it is beautiful to see. I do have one last question for you um, because we talked about mentorship and there's a lot of young women out here in Baltimore City. Maybe they're in high school growing up and They're looking at you and at your career and wondering, like, how can I get there? How can I be in a leadership position? So what kind of advice would you give some of these kids who are looking at being tomorrow's leaders? Yeah,
1: I think, especially for women, I do think we still have to work a little harder than our male counterparts. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that if you're getting involved in politics and you're involved in your community, and you're involved in policy or civic areas, you know, know your stuff and not be afraid to speak out and be a a strong advocate for whatever area that you care about, whether it's health, whether it's disabled, whether it's LGBTQ issues, make sure that you are a strong voice in your community. And if you run for office, it's a really hard work and shoe leather get you to the House of Delegates in these local offices, which is great, you know, because I have a lot of shoe leather that I burned through the years. And when you get in the House of Delegates or the Senate, I mean, being a good student of the bills, the legislation, you know, the institution, and I think always making sure that you have read the bills, you know the bills, you don't ask idle questions, you ask on point questions, and that you volunteer to step up when it's time to step up. There are a lot of young, really bright women right now Mm -hmm. that are coming up in the House and the Senate of Maryland that are going to be terrific leaders in the next
0: decade. Mm Well, Delegate Maggie McIntosh, thank you for your service to Baltimore and the state of Maryland, and thank you for being with us.
1: My
2: pleasure. Have a good night.
0: Thanks, you too.
2: The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Now introducing the Teen Library of Things. Teens ages 10 to 19 can check out GoPro cameras, coding robots, a Nintendo Switch and more. All you need is a library card. Details at prattlibrary.org.
0: He's in his second term as Baltimore City Councilman. Now Zeke Cohen is pushing a plan to change the way Baltimore agencies respond to trauma in the city. Councilman Zeke Cohen, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Honored to be with you, Megan.
0: So we interviewed delegate Mackie McIntosh for this episode. And I'm sure you two have a lot in common, but one thing you do have in common is that you both started your careers as teachers. So tell me, how do you go from being a teacher in West Baltimore to becoming a city councilperson?
3: Yeah, so it's sort of an interesting journey. You know, I taught in two schools, one in Sandtown and one in Curtis Bay, and both of which lacked heat. Drinkable water, air conditioning. Both schools shared one school psychologist between themselves and another school and had any number of children with a high degree of trauma and adverse childhood experiences. And so my work as a teacher really formed some of my political identity, which is that I was able to recognize that so many of the challenges that my students and their families faced came from systemic failures from within our government. Baltimore was one of the birthplaces of racial redlining. Baltimore in 1910 had the first sweeping ordinance to codify racial housing segregation and determine different disparate housing outcomes for black people, for white people, for Jewish people. You know, not too long ago, we fought A failed war on drugs that became a war on communities of color. Instead of treating addiction and substance use like a public health crisis, we treated it as criminality. And so, what I saw in the classroom was the impact of years of racist policymaking from city government, from state government, and from our federal government. And as a teacher, as someone who poured my heart and soul and energy into my students and into their families, it was really clear that in order to address the larger systemic issues that they were facing, that I needed to join city government and try to work from within the institution and try to change it. I'll also say just briefly, Megan, that you know I ran in a wave of younger progressive folks like councilman brunette councilwoman sneed councilman bullock councilman dorsey so many of us that came from organizing backgrounds and after the uprising after the death of freddie gray in police custody we all felt compelled to get involved and to run and to really take on what was then a very entrenched establishment And because we were organizers, because we had deep relationships within our communities, we were able to win. And we've supported each other ever since.
0: I feel like you're reading my question sheet because my next question was even, so in your first term, there was some turnover on the city council, but certainly in this election cycle, that turnover has considerably changed the face of the city council. So how do you think these fresh faces in leadership are going to benefit our city?
3: Yeah, so look, I'm just incredibly impressed by the abilities of my colleagues in city government, in the city council. We have some amazing fighters that are in here for all the right reasons and that truly have the heart of the community. Now, what is challenging is we've lost a lot of institutional memory. You know, and I think about folks like Mary Pat Clark and Ed Reisinger, who were just institutions within the council. Mary Pat Clark was like a progressive godmother to <laughs> so many of us. I mean, she literally took me under her wing and taught me how to be a city council person. And I will say that I owe a lot of my success as a legislator to her, Mm -hmm. to the path that she blazed. Mm -hmm. So we have lost a lot of institutional memory, but what we've gained is a fresh perspective, some young progressive fighters who I think are really going to shake up the city in a way that's really healthy. I've seen my colleagues already literally get their hands dirty, taking on issues around trash and dumping. Mm -hmm. I've seen folks who are just Energized to go after affordable housing and dealing with the tax sale. I know that several of my colleagues joined me as we did a training around trauma informed care. Mm-hmm. And that was really energizing and refreshing to see that kind of support among city leadership. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, Baltimore is a city that has a lot of entrenched challenges, and there's sort of a mentality that. You know, we do things this way because that's always the way we've done now. But I think we have folks who are really looking to shake it up and take the city in a different direction. Mm
0: -hmm. When I was a TV reporter, I think I told Mary Pat Clark once that there were some weeks that I spoke to her more than I spoke to my mother. So I understand what an institution Mary Pat was. That's Um, right. I want to jump into some current events before we talk about some of your more long-term legislative agenda, particularly the pandemic. Maryland is now announcing that they're lifting some of the COVID restrictions. Baltimore is not doing that. The mayor's announced that we will hold firm on some of the restrictions. Do you feel like that's the right move at this time?
3: I do. I think that if we're having an honest conversation and using the public health metrics to guide decision making, then it is clear to me that the mayor made the right call in -hmm. saying, look, we're just not ready to open up yet. Mm -hmm. We know that vaccines are coming, that we have seen an infusion from the federal government, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, but this is not the moment to ease up or to get overly comfortable. Look, I've lost so many constituents to this monster, particularly in our Latinx community, Mm -hmm. where we see disproportionate rates of transmission and deaths from COVID-19. Folks who through no fault of their own, are often the victims of housing exploitation and live in houses where there are multiple families sharing the space. Folks who often were not able to benefit from some of the federal support, folks who had to work despite the rise of the virus, whether it was in restaurants or Amazon Mm -hmm. or wherever, that has been really devastating in our community. We know right now, we're seeing all these new strains of the virus, Mm -hmm. whether it's the Brazilian strain, the British one, the South African one. And we know that these strains are potentially more transmissible and more deadly. And so it is incredibly important for us to buckle down, to continue to do the right thing, to socially distance, to wash our hands, to wear a mask, and to not behave as if we're out of the pandemic. And so I applaud the mayor. Mm-hmm. I know that he's under a lot of pressure sure. from the governor, from the business community, but I think that he's doing the right thing. And I think that if we want to be serious about leading with public health in mind, then now is not the time for us to open back up.
0: You mm-hmm. talk about this disparity in the Latinx community. There's also a massive disparity amongst the members of that community that are getting vaccinated versus oh, Yes people in the rest of the state so how much is vaccine equity on your mind and how do we write that ship
3: yeah no it's absolutely huge again it keeps me up at night the fact that even here in Baltimore where we have a mayor who legislated equity we have a city council that really believes in it even in our city we see disproportionately white folks getting access to the vaccine and Black and brown people lagging behind mm-hmm. in vaccinations. And, you know, some have said that, oh, that's because of hesitancy. That's actually not been my experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that's what the data bears out either. So it is critically important that we address the disparity in vaccination. Again, black and brown people have suffered far more from COVID 19 due to pre-existing health disparities, due to all the social determinants of health than white people have. Mm -hmm. And so as we think about ramping up vaccination, it is so important that we have the mobile units out in communities so that we're taking care of our seniors who may have mobility challenges. Mm -hmm. It's so important that we leverage trusted institutions like churches and other community-based organizations to one, dispel some of the myths about the vaccine, but also in some cases to be literal vaccination sites to become clinics themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got to get creative. We've got to do this in a way that no one has ever done it before. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see people of color lagging behind while our white neighbors are able to get vaccinated. It is of the utmost importance to me and I know it is to Mayor Scott as well. Mm -hmm.
0: The pandemic really does play into one of your long-term legislative agenda items, and that is trauma-informed care and approaching everything with that mindset. So how really do you think the pandemic has impacted that and caused the need for that to be even more urgent?
3: Absolutely, it has drastically exacerbated trauma within our city. Look, we were already experiencing enormous amounts of trauma and toxic stress in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. But you add on a global pandemic where our seniors have been forced to isolate and have been faced with not only the physical health implications, but an enormous amount of fear and stress and anxiety and depression. Layer on the children in our city who have been out of school for almost a year, who rely on their class, and their teacher, in some cases for a sense of safety Mm -hmm. and for community. You think about adults who were employed and now aren't, and due to the failures of the state's unemployment system have just been left out to dry and have been struggling financially. We know that trauma, depression, stress, anxiety are at all-time highs. Mm -hmm. And what we know from past pandemics is that these mental health impacts are gonna last longer than the physical health impacts, right? I mean, at some point, we will reach herd immunity, we will be able to open back up safely, and we will see people begin to resume some level of normalcy. But what we know is that the depression, the anxiety, just the pain that people have experienced, the grief, the loss, fear, the lack of community that is going to last far longer. Mm -hmm. And so the urgency of this work could not be more serious than right now. Again, we know that Baltimore already suffered disproportionately from violence, Mm -hmm. from systemic racism, from substance use disorder, from all the different adverse experiences. But now layer on this pandemic, and it is far, far worse. Mm-hmm.
0: We've heard you and other members of the city council, other city leaders talking about trauma-informed care, trauma-responsive care um, for the past couple years. And in some ways, I think people don't really have a thorough understanding of exactly what that means. So can you sort of in basic terms explain what that approach is and what it means for the city?
3: Absolutely. So look, we were really proud that in 2019, Baltimore became the first city in America to comprehensively legislate trauma-informed care. We passed the Elijah Cummings Healing City Act, named after the late, great Congressman Cummings, who had championed this issue nationally and held the first-ever congressional hearing on trauma-informed care. And we really passed this law because of what happened in Frederick Douglass High School, where there was a school shooting And young people came to testify in front of their city council and said to us, we are so tired of hearing you all talk ad nauseum about policing. Where's the effort to prevent this type of violence from occurring? And where's the focus on preventing trauma? And they listed all of the traumatic events that can occur. And that could be homelessness, that could be substance use disorder, that could be experiences with violence, experiences with institutional racism. These are some of the traumatic or adverse childhood experiences that young people in Baltimore face. The idea of trauma-informed care is that we need to build systems that, one, recognize what our children have experienced, and then treat them with a level of compassion, and humanity in order to foster healing within our young people. And we've extended it because we don't believe that trauma just impacts children in Baltimore. It impacts all of us. It is an individual experience, a traumatic event, but it's also something that is universally felt and is disproportionately felt in low-income communities and communities of color. Trauma in and of itself, if left untreated, can lead to higher rates of cancer, heart disease, depression, anxiety. It can cause an increased likelihood that someone will be substance use disordered or get addicted to substances. And it has even been shown to increase one's likelihood to be either a victim or a perpetrator of violence or to commit suicide. So there is not only a moral, but a real economic imperative for us to treat trauma at its source. So we developed the Elijah Cummings Healing City Act with this idea that in order to heal, we need to lean into that which is already great in Baltimore, which is our people. And so the law does three things. One is that it creates a citywide task force with 36 people Physicians, pediatricians, educators, parents, students, returning citizens, whose goal is to identify a citywide strategy to dramatically reduce trauma across Baltimore. The second thing is that it calls for training of every city agency and it leverages community based organizations like Holistic Life Foundation to teach mindfulness in our Enoch Pratt libraries Mm -hmm. and in our rec centers or to teach restorative practices, which is the idea that we can resolve conflicts and hold each other accountable without always needing to punish and be punitive. We teach about the brain science behind trauma. So what it does when your prefrontal cortex gets activated and how you can learn to self-soothe and calm yourself down. We teach about mindfulness and restorative practices, and all of these practices from a youth perspective, from a group called the Youth Healing Alliance. And the idea, Megan, is that for Baltimore to heal, we need to do it together. We need to begin in city government, where unfortunately, we ourselves have driven and caused so much of the trauma in our city, whether it's through legislation, like our ordinance in 1910 that openly... Embraced housing segregation, or whether it's just in the way that we have underfunded and undersupported our communities of color in East and West Baltimore, that we ourselves need to do better. And so we start with city government, but we also are bringing these trainings out into community to make sure that people themselves can benefit. That's really what trauma informed care is all about. And really where we are pushing it is toward healing-centered engagement. And again, as the first city in America to legislate it, to bring it into law, we feel a duty and an obligation to really get this right. And that's why, for me, I've spent so much of this last year, and I'm going to be spending so much of this term focused on making sure this legislation gets implemented with fidelity And also making sure the movement of people who have gotten behind it and who are pushing to make it happen stays whole and stays intact. To me, that's what a healing city will look like. It's not just city government. It's all of us reaching out across lines of difference and being there for each other and knowing that we are the medicine, that we have the capacity to heal ourselves and each other, and that that is what's going to create a more just, more vibrant, less violent Baltimore city. Mm
0: -hmm. The citywide organization training kind of changes the way that people who work for the city approach their jobs, whether that's a police officer, a paramedic, a librarian, someone in the housing department. And in that way, since it is sort of a mindset shift for everybody, it requires buy-in from all the agencies and everybody. So, How important is that buy-in for you? And do you feel like we're there, that there is that buy-in to shift that mindset of how city government works?
3: So that's a great question, Megan. And I will say that you're absolutely right. If people feel like, oh, this is just another useless city government professional development, Mm -hmm. then it's going to fall flat. And we've all seen that happen. I've been a teacher, I've been at PDs where folks are just on their cell phone and everybody's tuned out. And so we know that it's so important that we get it right the first go around. And that means really leaning into folks who are already in the work, who are compelling, who can carry a training and who can do it right. The other thing is before we passed this law, we spent an enormous amount of time, an entire year actually just listening in our libraries in our laundry mats, in our rec centers, in classrooms, really trying to both hear from people what they needed, but also enlist staff in this movement. And what we heard overwhelmingly is that folks want this training, but really cultural transformation, right? I remember speaking in one of our rec centers and one of the staff talked to me about how she had had three young people get shot within the last week. Mm -hmm. And as she was talking, her hand was trembling. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, look, Zeke, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I know that I'm suffering. I know that I'm experiencing post-traumatic stress. I know that my families are hurting, but I don't know what to do with it. And so to me, the clear call from her And from so many other people, it's not only that we want this type of training, it's that we need it in order to be effective in our work. And the other thing that I'd say, Megan, is we were really intentional in that the first folks to go through a miniaturized version of the training were all of our city agency heads, the mayor's cabinet. Because again, we know that if there isn't buy-in from the top and from the bottom it's not going to work and that leadership needs to be bought in and so i'm i'm truly grateful mayor scott had asked all of his cabinet to get trained within a month to understand what it is that we're going to be doing within their agencies and everybody went through it and i think that you know it was obviously a learning experience it was the first time we rolled it out but i think that universally people appreciated it. And we're now in a place where we are going to go agency by agency. We are going to go deep. And we're really making the commitment to bring this type of healing work at a level that Baltimore has never seen before.
0: Mm -hmm. Healing work like this is not short-term work. It's long-term work. So for you, all of the things you're doing, if they're all successful, what is the dream for you 10 years from now, 20 years from now, about the type of city that Baltimore is and will become.
3: That we completely transform our culture from one that is too often punitive, where every problem is seen as we need to bring in the hammer, we need police, we need jails, we need prisons, to a city that is investing in its people, that understands that trauma, that other public health crises need to be treated with people, with us, Mm -hmm. that we can't arrest our way out of our problems. And so that it is a complete cultural shift within our school system, within our libraries, within our rec centers, within our police department, within every single agency to one where we are being restorative where we're investing in people, where we understand the very difficult experiences that folks bring with them into our institutions and that we fundamentally just treat people with respect. Look, you're absolutely right. This is not a short-term project. I expect that it will take many, many years and I may not even be around to see this all the way through to fruition. I think it's an ongoing process that there isn't like an end point where you can say we've done it. Obviously, we're being very thoughtful in how we evaluate. We've brought on a whole team to help us with our evaluation. But I don't think it's something where a couple years from now, we'll be able to say, all right, great, we're there. We're a healing city. It mm-hmm. is a long-term endeavor, but it's something that I'm personally committed to. And it's something that we've just seen so much energy and enthusiasm and people from all walks of life, not just city government, but barbers and beauticians coming out and saying, we want to be part of this Healing City movement because we see ourselves as the healers of our communities. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll never forget. There's a guy, Troy Stanton, who Mm -hmm. he's a barber in West Baltimore. He... Was shot in his barber shop. Mm-hmm. And instead of abandoning Baltimore, he doubled down and he devoted the rest of his life to bringing healing within barber shops across the city. He's got this nonprofit, More Than a Shop, because what Troy recognized is within a barber shop, people are vulnerable, they are honest, they're able to have conversations that can be challenging and painful, but they come in without feeling stigmatized. And in a city that has a long and often pretty dark history with our medical institutions, places like the barbershop are a respite. Mm -hmm. And so Troy and folks like Donna, Bruce, and many others decided, you know what? We wanna be part of this. And they're now doing health screenings in the barbershops. They are bringing Narcan and peer recovery specialists within our barbershops. And they are every bit as much a part of this movement for healing as I am. And so, you know, this is Baltimore's movement. It's really not about me, it's about us. And it's about what this city can be and what we can do when we put aside our ego and decide to work together for the betterment of the people that live here. Mm-hmm.
0: Councilman Zeke Cohen, thank you so much for the time and for being with us today.
3: No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on and for the good work that you all are doing at ENF and f Pratt.
2: Need help getting connected? The Pratt Library is here for you. Hotspots, tablets, and more, all available for checkout, just like you check out a book. Head to prattlibrary.org and reserve yours today. Available for pickup at any sidewalk service location.
0: I'm Megan McCorkle and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.